0: Today we want to look at the war against worldliness. We looked at it last time, this is part two. We looked previs- previously at the war without, the war within, and the war that's won. That looked at how we should behave, how we win the war, how we battle against worldliness. We got a glimpse of the internal conflict and the war that Occurs, occurs in our hearts, that battle that goes on, the influence it has on our relationships. Between the brethren of Christ, parent to child, children to parents, friends to friends, the war with, with, within us is it's so strong, it's so mighty sometimes, and it impresses itself on the war that we then have with others. We must remind ourselves how our James Quite early on in this chapter 4 uses the strong words, he says, to describe the action of fighting and warring with someone else. The root word of this war signifies murder. The lack of internal control of our emotions. The desires and passions that have the ability to result in verbal killing of other people. Other human beings. See, just recently, we remember on the Remembrance Sunday, as we were listening to Pastor Paul Barton at the time, just one minute before 11am, there was reports of that terrorist attack, reports of a car explosion outside of Liverpool Hospital. That taxi driver that just narrowly escaped from the perpetrator. The car that blew up he just managed to escape in time. What a terrible act of terrorism. But since then, we know that the UK's terror alert has been increased, the level's gone up, it's been raised to severe. Attack, they say, is highly imminent. But for most of us, we've, if we're being honest, we've just got on with our lives, isn't it? We've returned to our daily routines we've seen this situation countless of periods of time right the shock that initial shock is not quite there anymore and the same can be said for our spiritual life we know we're in a spiritual battle but how does that translate to how we deal day to day how we warfare spiritually We've become accustomed to life, our daily routines, on the rigours of life, work, education, eating, sleeping, our recreational activities, and we so easily forget the spiritual threat levels in which we are battling each and every day. How often do you think about spiritual warfare, daily, weekly, annually? Maybe when you meet up with the in-laws, it's time to pray. (laughs) Maybe. What is spiritual warfare? Today we want to look at withstanding the pull of society, the pull of Satan, the pull of the human spirit. If we turn back to James chapter 4, as we look at withstanding the pull of society. It reads, you adulterous people, do you not know that the friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Adulterous people, James says. The context here is uh, he's speaking to Jewish Christians that have allowed their passions to rule them in the midst of poverty and persecution. They desired and coveted What others possessed. In doing so, they were willing to murder for it with untamed tongues. The very tongues that James says earlier, they praise God with the same tongues, yet they bring down others with the same tongue. They prayed for what they lacked, but their motive was wrongly placed, seeking to spend their requests on their passions. James calls such people adulterous people. We face many challenges as humans. One is the pull of worldly things. The world is shouts at us. Worldly lifestyles. Worldly situations. The world is simply sinful humanity. That's what the world is. Yes, the world is beautiful. The world is... We, we hear the Niagara Falls... The world is beautiful. Dartford Tunnel. Some people say beautiful, right? <laughs> There's so many things that out there that draws our attention. We know this. For all that is beautiful in this world. This world is saturated with sinners. Sinful humanity. Rebelling against God. The very God who has created them. These are those who have committed spiritual adultery. Naturally speaking, someone that commits adultery, when they break the marriage covenant, that loving union between a man and a woman, by physical and emotional attachment, they attach themselves to others, that's adultery. And it's the same in spiritual adultery. God has loved us, God has created us, and we rebel against him. See, spiritual adultery here is derived from a Greek word which is translated an adulteress. A word in the, that the Bible applied applies to God's people who place their affect, affections away from God. God's people, Israel, would commit adultery when their intimate relationship and allegiance with God, Yahweh, relapsed into adultery constantly, time and time again. They were likened to playing the harlot, See, adulterous is mentioned seven times in the Bible, and all of them are used in the New Testament. Mark 8.38 says this, it makes makes use of the word in this way, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So Jesus makes it clear that this world, this generation, this society as we know it, is spiritually adulterous. What makes the world adulterous? Well, Mark 8.34 provides the answer. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul for what can a man give in return for his soul see finding salvation and satisfaction in this world and the things of this world is at the core of spiritual adultery. To gain the world, which is to seek and to enjoy the world and all that it offers without no regard or knowledge of of a self-denying embrace of Christ and him crucified, ends in only forfeiting eternal life. What really matters, the true and her everlasting joy found in union with Christ. Spiritual adultery is conceived from the attraction of the world. And its enticement and the rebellious denial of God himself. Worldliness and godliness cannot coexist together. It's impossible. When a Christian denies God by turning away from him to embrace sinful passions and desires. Seeking to find comfort and satisfaction in those pleasures outside of God, it raises the question, are you for God or are you for the world? An unbeliever reading the Bible without any desire for Jesus to be Lord over their life may live a life of good morals. Yes, it good on the outside, but cannot live a life of godliness, cannot be godly. James 4.4 4 says, do you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Now friendship here is translated from the word filia, The root word that we know as filio. This is different from agape love. That sacrificial love that we've seen and we know of the Father that has acted in sending Jesus for us. That love that's not based on feelings. We know agape love is the highest form of, of love that the Bible references. Agape is who God is. God is love. And what he expresses also. A love that is not dependent on us. Returning that reciprocally. This is the love that Jesus demonstrated in that while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Here we look at a different word. Philia speaks of brotherly love. A love often experienced in a friendship relationship. It's where the city of Philadelphia gets the name from. The city of of brotherly love. Philadelphia. See, Philia here illustrates the type of love that's demonstrated to a blood relative. Expressed to a non-family member. Someone that's been embraced in such a way. That they are part of my family. But you may ask. But are we not made to love the world? Are we not made to love unbelievers? Can I I not have close relationships with unbelievers? See the Bible's not saying that you cannot have friends that are non-believers. In fact the Bible says we ought to love. We ought to show agape love, unconditional love. Those who love us as well as those who hate us. Those who persecute us and those who revile against us. It's not saying we shouldn't care for the world. The world we know, that the root word is cosmos. It's not saying we shouldn't love the world. And that's a hot topic at the moment as we see people trying to protect the world. (laughs) There's this love that's unusual for the world. That's very worldly. But here there is a filial for the word that cons- consequently results in the hatred of God. A brotherly love that holding on tight. James often draws from Jesus' sermon. He's, he's his half brother, isn't he? But also, most importantly, he's, Jesus is Lord over his life. And he, he remembers those sermons, he looks back on those sermons. And one of those sermons he's drawn from here, here from is Matthew 6, 24, which says no one can serve two masters. For either you will hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be a friend of the world and a friend of God. You cannot deny yourself of worldly pleasures whilst denying God. You cannot take up your cross and follow Jesus if your lifestyle is in keeping with the world. You may say that, yes, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that so whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But that word there is, for God so agapaho the world. The, the, the love is agape. This unconditional love that he has for the world as a creator, upon his creation, his created beings. The undeserving world, which is not worthy of God, not worthy of his redeeming love, received the sacrificial love through Jesus Christ our Lord, light into this world. This is love, though, that is effectual for God and those who he loves so dearly. Those who love him and seek his face, seek to do his commandments, love him with all their hearts and all their mind and all their soul. John goes on further to say, and this is the judgment, the light, Jesus, has come into this world. And the people loved the darkness rather than the light. They loved the darkness rather than Christ because their works were evil. See, coming into the light exposes the evil heart of humanity. It's better to hide in the darkness. And and worldly speaking, that's, that's what people do, right? They hide in the darkness because the sins will not be revealed. That's how the world reasons. But nothing is hidden from God. He sees it all. If we step back in John 2, 15 to 16, before we get to John 3, 16, it says, do not love the world. All the things in the world. If anyone loves the world. The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world. The desires of the flesh. And the desires of the eyes. And the pride of life. Is not from the Father. But it's from the world. How do we reconcile these passages. With, John, with James 4. 4? See Christians are to take a stand. Against ungodly worldly systems. A system that promotes the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. But we're not talking about CRT, critical race theories. We're not talking about social justice. We're talking about withstanding sin. We're talking about standing up for Jesus. That's the true warfare. That's the battle we should be engaging in. See, true believers are saved out of the world by Jesus. We are called to be separate, separate in thinking, in our emotions, in our actions, in our behaviours, in our conduct, in our service, in our love, most especially. Every work of darkness must be cast off by putting on the armour of light, Christ Jesus himself. We cannot walk in sexual immorality, drunkenness, sensuality, We cannot be given to quarrelling and jealousy. But we must put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. To gratify its desires. See, society provides various temptations. Those M&S adverts. Food entice us as we get close to Christmas. The Coca-Cola adverts that you soon see or may have seen. Oh, the days are coming. Hmm. The Black Friday deals that are not deals, if you've been studying it for the last year. <laughs> it's the corrupt and deceptive pricing of goods, the worldly philosophies, the priorities, the goals, the selfish ambitions, the list goes on. What is the answer to the lure and the enticement and the pull of the world? Look again with me in James 4, 8-9. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Who shall ascend onto the hill of the Lord? Psalm, Psalm 24 says, only he that has a pure heart and has cleansed his hands. Shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? It's a reminder that we we see here. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We know from Scripture that no one can draw near to God unless God draws near to them. Every human being is born spiritually dead, unable to spiritually discern the things of God or to even know God. Just as a corpse has no life in the body, a spiritual dead person, has no spiritual life James addresses professing Christians, those who are already in union in Christ but their communion is at odds, it's causing friction with their union they're not growing in intimacy and their intimacy is it's being divided with the things of the world withstanding the pool of the world looks like this draw near to God Draw closer to Him, know Him in fellowship, in suffering, being conformed to Christ Himself. Know Him sacrificially. Those things that are so difficult to do. The spiritual disciplines of reading the Bible each and every day, crying out to Him and praying, seeking His face. Seek to do it when your, your world, the world is pulling you away. Job, family commitments develop that spiritual discipline to press in so that i'm gonna press on and endure this because it doesn't feel good but we don't do things because it feels good in fact when it doesn't feel good that's when you know when that goes to the gym when you're building your muscles it's not when it's just a light weight that so you're picking up if you want to bulk up you feel the pain and the gain comes later Love him with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul and your strength. That same verse 8, what is said of the double-minded, is what we remind ourselves of in chapter 1. talks unstable in all his ways, as we were reminded. Someone that's become lukewarm in their faith and their lifestyle. One foot in the worship of God and one foot in the worship of the world. One foot of worship of the world and one foot of the worship of God. Adulterous people. A picture of Lot's wife looking back, missing what she had before. And we see the destruction that caused a land of rampant wickedness. She's looking to it. I miss it. James states, cleanse your hands, you sinners. He reminds us of Isaiah 1.16 that says, Seize the evil that you are doing. Remove the evil of your deeds. Hands referring to our outward behaviours. He's saying also to purify our hearts. How do you purify your heart? Only allowing Jesus to do the work that only he can do. Cleanse us. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you, David said. Hide that word. Love it. Hold it close to your heart. Love it and cherish it. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Godly sorrow. Turning away from the world and looking to Jesus. With a heart that's contrite. Humbled. Seeking him. Mourning that... How oh, wretched man I am. Save me, oh God, from this body. Turn your laughter to mourning. Mourn over your sins. Mourning. Bible says, those who mourn shall be comforted. Those who mourn over their sins. This is not the mourning over someone that has been lost or family member or anyone or just someone that's passed away. This is real true mourning. About your sins. Then we receive comfort. Of Christ. It says. Turn your joy to gloom. When we've gone through this. Process of sanctification. Day after day. You know what God does to us. Those sins that we used to commit. Those the joy and the pleasures. That we used to enjoy in them. He causes us to hate them causes us to hate them, though joy, the pleasures that we have, turn to gloom. Old things pass away, behold all things are new, we begin to lay hold of what Christ has laid of us. How does an unbeliever draw near to God? Just the same, right, as the same as a, a believer. We are bought with the precious blood of Christ. Our body is the Lord's. We turn to Jesus. We repent from our sins. A Christian is a sinner that repents daily, looking to God, putting our faith and trust in God. But you may say, I can't leave my friends behind. I can't leave the things that I enjoy behind. You may not know Christ now, but you might might be saying, in the future, there's still an opportunity. Today is the day of salvation. You don't know tomorrow. Do not wait. The last person that you want as an enemy is God. Himself. You do not want God as an enemy. The Bible said it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The God is all powerful and almighty who can crush us at any moment, any given time, because he's righteous and his justice and his holiness demands that sin be crucified. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Leave those worldly ways that have trapped you, that have ensnared you. You may laugh now but, and enjoy those things now, but those things do not, do not grant you eternal life at all. You can live your best life now, but where does that get you? Outside of Christ. There is no real life outside of Christ. It's a condemned life. Whoever does not believe in Jesus is condemned already. Living in spiritual darkness. Deep blackness. Only adding for eternal death. Only eternal death. See, God's wrath is one of justice and righteousness. Jesus condescended to save sinners. Save sinners from the world. So that they, be, they can be awakened to the wonders of the work On the wooden cross of Calvary. Jesus saves sinners. If you confess your sins. He is faithful and just. To forgive of sins and all. All unrighteousness. There is nothing. That you may have done. Or be guilty of. That Jesus cannot forgive. Those secret sins. The iniquities those things that have been worldly that has caused it to be ingrained in us, he can save you from them. Those sins of old that seem to hang about, he can save you from them. He is the saviour. John Flavel says this, all hypocrites reject and quarrel with something, um, with something in Christ. They like his pardon better than his government. We don't want the lordship of Christ. But I like Jesus. His word is sound. He's a good guy. But I don't want his government. That's what the world says. Are you living a double life. Professing to be a Christian. But with no fruit of salvation. No thirst for righteousness. Lacking good works. That flow from a life of faith in Jesus. Repent. Repent. Today. Turn away. In this world, there is pa- a powerful ad- adversary. His name is Satan. And this leads us to our second point. We're standing the pool of Satan. James only makes mention of Satan once, and it's found here. A, a passage that my, my son was to the teach, they taught me this from early, and I'm so grateful. Submit yourself to the Lord, resist the devil, and he will flee. He will flee. Often this verse has given license for, for professing Christians to rebuke the devil. I rebuke you. Satan, I rebuke you. That's not what the Bible says. We must remind ourselves of Jude verse 9. Archangel Michael says this, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. The archangel himself did not rebuke the devil. What did he say? He said, the Lord rebuke you. See, when we look back at James, the only right conclusion is that rebuking the devil is directly correlated to communion and submission to God. The rebuke of the devil is not by word, but by submission to God. In order to resist the devil, there must be the surrender to God, firstly. The lordship of Christ over a Christian's life overpowers any hold of the enemy. The matchless name of Jesus causes Satan and his hosts to flee. The presence and power of Jesus renders captives free from the stronghold of Satan. Christians have been translated from the kingdom of darkness and ruled that's ruled by the God of this world, the devil himself, and have been translated into the kingdom of the beloved Son of God. The devil has power, yes, but he has limited power. Limited power to, to, to sin-stained world until he's finally judged. And he will be judged. Scripture is clear on his plans. He comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. We know that at the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4, that he attempted to rob Jesus of his dependency on the Father. He sought to kill Jesus by tempting him to throw himself up off from the pinnacle of the temple. He ultimately wanted to destroy the redemption plan of God through Jesus as mediator why and how by offering him the kingdoms of the world and their glory in exchange for Jesus to be to bow down in worship. But Jesus our sinless savior, meek mediator, righteous ruler, and perfect priest stuck to the divine purpose and live in submission to God's, the Father's will and to the word of God, directed by the Holy Spirit. We understand we stand against the pull of the world by submitting to the one who humbled himself to die on the cross of Calvary. His death for your death, his life for your life, eternal life, his victory, For your victory. He was taken captive. For your sake. And my sake. So that we are no longer held captive. By Satan and the world. But death could not hold him captive. He didn't stay in the grave. He rose by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he led hosts of captives. And ascended. What a mighty God. See our victory against Satan is as sure as Jesus' death and resurrection. But brothers and sisters, we must submit to God. We must submit our desires. We must submit our passions. We must submit our sufferings. We must submit our money. We must submit our job. The list goes on. The very things that cause you to sin. When submitted to God becomes an avenue for thanksgiving. You can look back and say you have brought me thus far. You have rescued me from the raging seas of sin. Charles Spurgeon was quoted as saying this. Be thankful for the thorns and thistles which keep you from being in love with the world. Oh what a great word to us. That in our sufferings, in our difficult times, they keep us from the world. God uses those very things to draw us to him. Amazing. See, God demands your life. Your life as a Christian is not your own anymore. If indeed you have been crucified with Christ. It's the world and all that it offers Glittery, shiny, looks nice. But they're all smokescreens for destruction. Mm -hmm. All that glitters is not gold. All that gives gain is not glorious. All that sells is not satisfying. Mm -hmm. Whilst we cannot blame Satan for every sin that we commit, he plays a huge part as the father of lies, an accuser of the brethren. He schemes along with his agents to tempt us to sin through our passions, our desires, and even suffering. We stand in the strength of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who is without sin, perfect desires, who obeyed perfectly in suffering for your sake and my sake. Do not be proud. Humble yourself before the Lord. Verse 6 says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Verse 10 says, humble yourselves in adoration of the one who gave you all himself as the greatest gift you could ever receive. But I still sin, you say. I still sin. And this leads us to our final point. Withstanding the pull of the human spirit. James reminds us in verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says. He who is God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. See at first glance on reading that thinking. Okay, where where is he quoted from in the Bible? And I looked, I looked, there's no definitive quote here. But the whole Bible speaks about God being jealous for his people. He loves his people. What James is saying, do you suppose that the scripture here is of no purpose, James asks. Do you think the word of God is not living and active? Do you think that it has no spiritual value? This is what it means by purpose. What he's asking ultimately is, what is your attitude to God's word? What is your attitude to the Bible? What is your attitude to the authority of God's word? See, some translations here. This is such a difficult passage to understand here. This particular verse, verse 5. New King James says this, or do you think that the scripture says in vain that the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? And King James Version says this, do ye think that the scripture saith in vain the Spirit, lowercase s, that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? So the human spirit. NIV says, or do you think scripture says without reason that the Spirit equals, which is the lowercase s, equals to live in us, Envies intensely. So are we talking about the Spirit of God or are we talking about the human spirit? In fact, then another translation splits this verse into two questions. Says, this is American Standard Version says, or think ye that the Scripture speaketh in vain? Question mark. Doth the Spirit, lowercase s, which He made to dwell in us, long unto envy? Two questions. So difficult. Are we dealing with the spirit of man or are we dealing with the spirit of God? Is it that the spirit of man yearns jealously for God or does the spirit of man lust for the world? There's a question to be answered here. I'll share something with you. This is B.B. Warfield, a Bible scholar, right? So he, he, he's taken this to be the Holy Spirit. This is what he says. See us steeped in the sin of the world, loving evil for evil's sake, hating God and all that God stands for, ever seeking to drain deeper and deeper the cup of sinful indulgence. The Spirit follows us unwaveringly through all. He's not driven away because we are sinners. He comes to us because being sinners, we need him. He's not cast off because we reject his loving offices. He abides with us because our rejection of him would leave us helpless. He does not condition his further help upon our recognising and returning his love. His continuous with us is conditioned only on his love for us. And that love for us is so strong, so mighty, so constant that it can never fail. When he sees us immersed in sin and rushing headlong to destruction... He does not turn from us. He yearns for us with jealous envy. It is in the hands of such love that we have fallen. And it is because we are falling into the hands of such love that we have before us a future of eternal hope. Yea, his love burns all the stronger because we are so deeply in need of his help. He's yearning after us with jealous love. End of quote. See, he's taken this to be the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit jealously yearning for us. I can't say definitive, but I know this for sure that the love of God for us has pulled us out of the raging sea of sin. His love for us, if you want to know the steadfast love of God, which has no beginning and no end and never ceases. It's found in his agape love for us. God the Father, through his beloved son Jesus, sparks to life dead souls through the power of his spirit. It's only by the spirit of God impressing itself on our spirit that we become spiritually alive. We are only able to yearn, our human spirits only able to yearn For him, when the Spirit of God comes into our lives, causes us to turn from sin and look to the work of Christ. See, our sanctification is not based on our love for God. If it was, every time our love grows cold, then we would be in jeopardy. But our love, our salvation, our sanctification is because he first loved us. That's why we're able to love him. He's perfect, jealous, powerful love that's consistent and continues to pull us from the world, from Satan and the desires of our human spirit. Thus, I believe that the purpose of this verse 5 is to remind us that God is the one that has initiated the loving covenant with his people. He keeps his terms the terms of his covenant perfectly and fulfills the righteous demands of the covenant despite our constant adultery. And that's why he says finally in verse 6 but he gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud and but gives grace to the humble. God grants undeserved love by extending his hand of grace, even the more when we are, when we are strayed away. He never gets, lets us go beyond his parameters. Who does God grant extra grace to? We need to understand what grace is. He grants grace, he grants saving grace, firstly to those who he loves, Jealously, those who are his people, his possession, those who have been sanctified by Christ for his own possession. Jesus too has felt the tug of sin, but yet remains sinless. Unlike us as humans, Jesus was perfect in his humanity. There was no ability in him to sin. He was tempted, yes but only in experience and sufferings, but not in participation in those sins. We can come to the altar of Christ, our high priest. We can come with confidence to his throne of grace and receive more grace in time of need. If you are here today and Jesus is not Lord and Saviour over your life, this message will not benefit you unless you come to the cross of Christ. Unless you bow down to the cross of Christ and surrender and submit your will, your passions, your desires, your all to Christ. Until you see the glorious Saviour, Jesus Christ, who bled and died on the cross of Calvary. And identifying with you in this humanity, there is no true hope for eternal life. It's only found in Christ. The human spirit has been corrupted, brothers and sisters. From birth, it enters the rat race of corrosion, it only wants the way of death. That's not true life. You can enjoy it now, but what is to come? The only way to eternal life is to deny yourself now. Deny yourself of your passion. Deny yourself of the worldly things. Submit to God. Resist the devil. That's how you do it. Submit to God. The only way to eternal life is to deny yourself of anything that will close your eyes shut to the jealous love and grace found in God. Every temptation... Every suffering that brings pleasure or grief is an attempt to bring you down. But there is one that has laid down his life for you. He's laid down his life for you so that you can live eternally. We must withstand the pull of society, we must withstand the pull of Satan. We must withstand the pull of self, the pull of the whole of the human spirit. We must cling to the grace of God, the grace of Christ. I'll end on this. Titus two eleven says this. For the grace of God has appeared. Grace is Jesus. The grace of God, Jesus has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our beloved our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Here lies the jealous love of God, the work of the jealous love of God in the war against worldliness. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. True exaltation is for those that have been brought to a life Of spiritual love with Christ. True exaltation is being brought to life spiritually. You cannot engage in spiritual warfare without being spiritually alive. So submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. Humble yourselves that you may be exalted by God. Our God who has ascended. Who is now forever making intercession for us the great high priest, who we will walk with him one day. But whilst we're here, we are to put on Christ. That's the true armor to stand in the power of his might, to know him, to pray and to warfare spiritually against everything that seeks to upend you and to resist and pushes pushes, pushes you back. Press on, brothers and sisters, to know him, to serve him, To love him. Those sins. As you submit to God. Will fall away. They will fall away. When you trust in him. And rest in what Christ has done for you. For there is no longer. No condemnation for those. Who are in Christ Jesus. Live your lives. Knowing there is a spiritual battle. But his victory. He has won the victory on the cross. He died once And for all, embrace the love of Christ. Do not wait for tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Repent from sin. Turn to him. Embrace his love. Amen.